Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the LA area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. All right. Well, we got a lot to uh, to move through. So, if you would go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke chapter nineteen. And while you're turning there, I'm going to set the stage a little bit. So, this passage that we're going to cover today, so it's twenty-seven verses, um, really is a counterpart to several other passages in Luke. In particular, the first ten verses or so. First of all, it's set in Jericho, which makes it a counterpart to the blind beggar, which we covered last week. And then the reference to the son of Abraham makes it a counterpart to the daughter of Abraham, referenced in Luke 13, 10 through 17. This passage also has reoccurring themes that are found in the call of Levi, as well as the parables of the lost and the found, which is found in Luke 15. And those themes would be Jesus's uh, hostility, or hospitality, rather, not hostility, thank you, Lord, uh, would be his hospitality with sinners. The Jewish leaders muttering against Jesus. We have Jesus defending his fellowship with sinners. We also have the salvation of the lost, and then ultimately rejoicing following that salvation. And so the call of Levi and the parable of the lost and the found really prepare us for Jesus' meeting with Zacchaeus. And in particular, verses 1 through 10 are a thematic capstone, if you will, on the preceding passages, uh, as well as Jesus' association with outcasts throughout the Gospels. So in this passage, Jesus is pretty much putting a period on this whole idea that he associates with sinners, that he loves sinners, that he saves sinners, and that he seeks and saves the lost. And so first 10 verses are going to cover that, and then um, ultimately the preceding Verses will cover something else. But the structure of this passage really can be divided into two parts. We have verses 1 through 10, which showcases the faithfulness of God towards sinners. And then we have verses 11 through 27, which establishes the expected faithfulness of the people of God. So essentially, you have God being faithful to his people, and then how his people should respond to that faithfulness. And so if you would, let's pray, and then we'll dig into these verses together. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful afternoon, Lord, that we can be in your word, and Lord, that we can learn about you and who you are and your faithfulness towards us. Lord, I pray that as we learn about your faithfulness, would it move us to faithfulness to you, Lord, that we would just be uh, good servants of you, that we would make the most of what you've given us, and Lord, that you would just... Uh, spur us, Lord, to, to be changed, to be challenged today. And so, Lord, we just give you this time asking that you would do with it as you would will. Lord, would you do uh, what it would, uh, Lord, what would please you. And so, Lord, we love you. We thank you. Be with us. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. So starting in verses 1 and 2, it says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, speaking of Jesus, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was Rich. So as we begin our narrative, Jesus is walking through Jericho, and there's this man named Zacchaeus, and in particular, he was a chief tax collector. Now, tax collectors um, were not well-favored among the Jewish people, to say the least. And so to say that he was a tax collector shows his disreputability. 
Now, the fact that he was a chief tax collector underscores it or underlines it. And here's why. Because tax collectors were categorized with thieves and robbers and murderers in the eyes of the Jewish people because they would extort the Jewish people. They tended to make a little extra money by collecting taxes. Now, the fact that he was a chief tax collector means that not only was he a bad guy, but he was a leader of other bad guys. And so he was not somebody who would have been well-liked. And on top of that, it says that he was rich. Now, Luke has not categorized wealth as being evil. Wealth in in and of itself is not wrong. It's not wrong to have wealth. However, what he does establish is that wealth possesses a particular danger to discipleship and can present very particular obstacles. Now, what Luke has not yet established, though, is that Jesus is a friend of the rich. He's established that he's a friend of tax collectors, sinners, uh, the poor. You, You constantly see this throughout the Gospels, and yet he has not yet shown him to be a friend of the rich. And so... If you were never to have read this before, you don't really know what's going to happen to Zacchaeus when he meets Jesus. How will he respond to him, knowing that he has wealth? And so, we see in verse 3, And he was seeking Jesus to see who he was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And the fact that it says that he was seeking implies that he's been doing this for a while. This is not something that just started, but that he'd been trying to meet Jesus. But notice, on account of the crowd, he couldn't see him. He couldn't see anything. He was small. Now, I want you to understand, by him being in a crowd, he's actually putting himself at great risk. And here's why. Because if you were the chief tax collector, and the people hate you and your kind because you extort them, and you're friends of the Romans who are known to abuse the Jewish people, um, that would not make you very well-liked in the Jewish community. And so if he's standing in a crowd, this could cause some problems for him. And so he's putting himself at great risk. However, you have to admire his determination. He was not letting what other people think stop him. He wasn't letting the fear of man stop him from seeing Jesus. And so his desire to see Jesus was greater than his fear of man. And so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So he knew that Jesus was going to come by, and he couldn't see anything. So he's thinking, you know what? I can't see over this crowd, but there is a sycamore tree. Now, sycamore trees could grow 60 to about 100 feet tall, and they have lateral limbs, so it makes them very easy to climb. Uh, I can absolutely understand this logic. My brother is six foot two, um, so it's probably why I also happen to like climbing trees. I happen to feel very short next to, standing next to him. And so I understand this logic, that he was thinking, if I can't see over the crowd, I'm going to get a better vantage point by climbing up into a tree, which he does so. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Now, what's rather interesting is that what Zacchaeus has initiated, Jesus is about to finish. Notice, Jesus calls him by name. Now, they couldn't have had any prior interaction because he had not yet met Jesus. It's possible that maybe he knew who Zacchaeus was simply because he probably would have had somewhat of a reputation around town. Even though he wasn't very well liked, people would have likely known who he was and maybe would have even murmured about him. But I think what is far more likely 
And this comes from John 10, 14, that Jesus called him by name because he knows his sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. So he knew him because he was God. He knew him because he already knew what he was going to do in the heart of Zacchaeus. He already knew what was going to happen this day in Zacchaeus' life. I also want you to understand what Jesus does here is not the norm in Judaism. I mean, it was verging on improper. You don't just invite yourself over to stay with someone. And so, he does something that's kind of out of the ordinary. And notice, Jesus actually says that this is urgent. He says, hurry, come down. I have to stay at your house today. Like, this has to happen today. And we're going to see why here in a second. And so, Zacchaeus hurries down. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now notice, he hurries down to see Jesus. And this was a moment of joy. This wasn't a time where Zacchaeus was going to be judged. Which, honestly, should actually be expected. Because typically, Jewish rabbis and tax collectors really didn't get along. This is not the norm. And yet, Zacchaeus is not expecting judgment. He's not expecting Jesus to call out to him and be like, Hey, Zacchaeus... We need to talk about what you've been doing to the people. Okay, we need, we need to come down and have a chat about this and straighten this out. Yet he comes down joyfully. Now it's possible that this is indicating that he's expressing saving faith in Jesus at this moment. The fact that he receives him joyfully seems to support that. And so notice what happens next. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So notice... Jesus going to Zacchaeus' home evokes two responses. Joy from Zacchaeus and grumbling from the crowd. See, Zacchaeus seems to understand that he's the recipient of great grace at this moment. The crowd, on the other hand, is not understanding why Jesus would want to hang out with this man. Well, he's a sinner. He doesn't deserve to be in the presence of this great rabbi, this great teacher. Why would Jesus be going to see this man of all people? Shouldn't he be hanging out with the, the, the religious zealots, the one who you know, know the scriptures, the one who are you know, more righteous than he? And yet Jesus is with Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector. Grace doesn't make sense to the world. Zacchaeus doesn't deserve it. That doesn't make sense to them. Typically, the people who get favor are the ones who deserve it, not the ones who don't. But that's because they don't understand grace. And so in showing mercy to the tax collector, Jesus took on the hatred of the tax collector. Now notice what happens. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And so Jesus comes into his presence And the grace of God causes a radical transformation in Zacchaeus. And this is why I say a radical transformation, because Zacchaeus is not defending himself. He's not standing before the Lord trying to justify, like, well, wait a minute, Lord, this this isn't as bad as it looks. I I give away, you know, half of my goods to the poor. I, I, you know, if I've defrauded anybody, I'll make good on it. He's not trying to defend himself. And here's why I say this, because first of all, the word used for goods here is hyperconta, which refers to possessions and not income. So he's saying that he's going to give away half of his possessions continually, like he always gives away half his possessions. You'd be left destitute pretty quickly, right, if you were just constantly giving away half your stuff to people. 
So it's, it's not talking about income, he's talking about possessions. And also, if he were defending himself, it implies that he could keep defrauding people, he could keep stealing from people, so long as he made good on it eventually. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that doesn't sound like repentance. That sounds like you're just going to continue to do the same sinful thing that you're always doing, and eventually you're just going to kind of make amends here and there. And so it's not true repentance, and yet Jesus continually taught that faith and repentance go together. Those two things are combined. And notice, Zacchaeus also says, look, or in this case, behold, implying that something new is happening, something has changed, something is different. This is not just a continuation of behavior. He's going to do something new. He was transformed. And notice, Jesus is not requiring that Zacchaeus change before he stays with him. See, far too often, many people, especially people who don't know the Lord, but even some Christians, tend to have this idea that, okay, I need to get my life right, and then I'll come to the Lord. Well, I just need to kind of work this out, and then me and Jesus will kind of, you know, keep going together. Can I tell you something? If you're waiting to get your life together before you come to Jesus, it's never going to happen. Because it's not until you come to Jesus that your life can even be brought together in the first place. You can't transform you. And so notice what happens. It is Jesus' presence that evokes a transformation within him. It is the fact that Zacchaeus was in the presence of God in the flesh that changed him. It wasn't Zacchaeus' determination and willpower. It was the fact that when he met Jesus, he was changed. And so notice Zacchaeus' response. He responds to salvation with what? Repentance. Specifically by making amends in accordance with the Torah requirements. Typically in Numbers 5-7 what it would say is that if you you stole anything or anything like that, if you're making restitution, it's whatever you took plus a fifth. And then on top of that, in the case of livestock, it would be five oxen for every one loss. It would be four sheep for every one loss. So there was significant interest that was paid on top of what was lost. And notice Zacchaeus voluntarily does what the rich young ruler would not do. He voluntarily does what he wouldn't do. He's in the presence of Jesus. He meets the Lord. He receives that grace, and it causes this radical transformation in him. And then notice what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since I also, or since he also is a son of Abraham. Now notice, he uses this word salvation, and this word for salvation is soteria. This is where we get the word soteriology from, and pretty much that's just the study of salvation. So you now all know a nice theological word you can throw around when you're talking with your Christian friends. So he uses this word soteria, and it's first announced to Zechariah in chapter 1. And then you know what happens? It's never used again until this point. It's repeated for the first time since then, right here. Its repetition here prepares the impending death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, ultimately bringing salvation. And so the saving faith made available to Zacchaeus and his house in this moment is going to be completed by Jesus on the cross in just a short while. 
And then notice what he calls him. He calls him a son of Abraham. Paul speaks of two different kinds of sons of Abraham. There are children of the flesh. These are physical descendants of Abraham. These are people who are ethnically Jewish. And then there are children of the promise who are spiritual sons of Abraham, bearing the promise of salvation. And so you have those who are those who have faith are sons of Abraham, Galatians 3.7. So notice, Zacchaeus is now at the latter. He's not just a physical son of Abraham, but he is a spiritual son of Abraham. And then he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now I find this rather ironic, the way that this interaction ends. Because it starts with Zacchaeus seeking out Jesus. And yet notice what Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, their meeting was not orchestrated by Zacchaeus. It was orchestrated by Jesus. It wasn't just that Jesus happened to be passing through Jericho and it just kind of worked out and as a result Zacchaeus got saved by happenstance. That's not what happened in this moment. See, Jesus was walking through Jericho to meet with Zacchaeus. He was already seeking Zacchaeus out. This is why when he looked up into the tree and called out to Zacchaeus, he already knew his name. Because this was the plan. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. And notice it didn't end with Zacchaeus earning Jesus' favor by his self-righteousness, but it ended with Jesus restoring Zacchaeus as a true son of Abraham. Notice, the decisive seeker was Jesus. For thus says the Lord God, indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. Ezekiel 34, 11. You realize that if Jesus did not make himself known to us, we would not find him? So that's the thing about grace. It's not deserved. He could have simply just judged us in our sin, been done with it, and he wouldn't have been any less righteous. He doesn't owe us grace. He doesn't owe us salvation. He could have simply just judged us. And yet he chose to show grace. He chose to make himself known. He chose to make a way of salvation for us, even though we didn't deserve it. He made himself known, and that's why Zacchaeus was able to find him. Because Jesus sought him first. That's why the Bible says, in this is love, not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us. That he loved us first. And so, Jesus accomplishes God's mission as foretold by the prophets, particularly here at Ezekiel. Because this is the substance of what the kingdom of God is made of. See, consistently, the Jewish people would get this wrong. They thought that when the Messiah would come, when Jesus would come, that he would set up this physical kingdom, he'd boot out the Romans, he'd fix all the social problems, and just rule from the throne of David right then and there. But see, Jesus knew something that they had missed. See, you could fix the physical problems all you wanted, but there was still a spiritual problem with everyone, Jewish people included. See, if he just instituted another physical kingdom, then they'd end up just doing the same stuff over and over again that they kept doing in the Old Testament. They would have periods of faithfulness, and then they'd start to taper off, and they'd fall into idolatry, and then the Lord would have to give them a whooping, and then all of a sudden they would start to get the idea again, they'd be faithful, and then they would start to fall into idolatry again, and then the Lord would send them into captivity or whatever it was to get their attention, and it just went on and on and on and on because they had a heart problem. And so notice... Jesus is setting up not just a physical kingdom, but a spiritual one. 
So he wanted to establish a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. He recognized that their hearts needed to be changed. Because here's the thing, if the heart changes, all the outside stuff follows. If the heart changes, everything else goes with it. All the physical stuff, it's all just symptoms of a bigger issue. That's why so often we can focus on on trying to create all this social change or we think that the government's going to do something. I'm not to say any of that's necessarily bad, but we can get so focused on it that we forget that people have sinful hearts and so long as that is true, it's not really ever going to change indefinitely. You have to change the hearts of people. If you want to see change, preach the gospel because as people's hearts change, everything else is going to go with it. And Jesus understood that. Saving faith that leads to a transformed life. Now notice, as I said before, in the Gospels, the Jews would always kind of think that he's going to set up a physical kingdom, and this time is no different. Notice what they say. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. You've got to love the patience of Jesus. <laughs> Constantly, them having this idea, and then Jesus having to constantly correct this way of thinking. And so he tells them a parable. They thought it was going to be imminent. They thought he was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And so he's going to tell them otherwise. Notice, he said, therefore, a nobleman went to a far country to retreat or receive for himself a kingdom and then return. So we have the nobleman. The nobleman represents Jesus. He's later declared king in Luke 19, 38. He goes off into a far country. Remember, he has his death, his burial, his resurrection. He hangs out with his disciples for a little while. Then he goes up to be with the Lord, right? He goes back to be with the Father. So he has the ascension. He goes to a faraway kingdom. And then he receives a kingdom for himself. And then he returns. This is the second coming of Christ. And then notice, calling ten of his servants who are believers, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I Come. So he gives them this mina. It's a Semitic unit of currency. It's equivalent to about like 100 days wages or so. Um, so to give you an idea, it's like maybe the value of like a truck or something, like a new truck. Now, it's a substantial amount of money, but it's nothing that would be, you know, like you're going to be able to live off your inheritance kind of money, like we saw with the parable of the talents. And you might see some connections between these two. And there are some connections between the parable of the talents and the parable of the minas. But this one is distinct in the fact that each servant, not only do they get a smaller amount, but everyone gets the same thing. And so, he tells them to engage in business. Now notice, they're not instructed to change the world, or to impress the world, or to meet some you know, uh, production quota. He simply expects them to be faithful until he returns to be faithful what they've been given. And so, the mina is a trial sum to test the servant's faithfulness to the master, to the nobleman's absence. And so here, the emphasis is not on the gain. The emphasis is on their witness. What did they do with the giftings and callings that they were given? Were they faithful with what they were given? Were they faithful with what they had? And notice, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And so it says that his 
citizens hated him. Now, there's nothing in the parable that indicates that he deserves this hatred, that he did something to them, that they hated him for it. And so, if anything, it actually reflects poorly on the citizens, that they just kind of hate their ruler without cause. This verse recalls Jesus' lament over Jerusalem because of their unwillingness to be gathered together to Jesus. Now, obviously, this is referencing the rejection of the Messiah. And this is not just limited to Jews only, but to all who would reject Jesus as Messiah. And I find this rather interesting that it's the citizens who are rejecting him and not the sinners and tax collectors. It seems like opposition is more likely from the self-righteous than from sinners. Because the self-righteous don't think they need grace. They don't think they need help. They don't, need, they don't think that they need salvation. It's the sinners that know that they need help. It's the sinners that recognize their own neediness, their own helplessness to do anything about their current condition. And they're more likely to be the ones who befriend Jesus. As we've seen throughout the Gospels, as Jesus put it, is it not the sick who need a doctor? And that's exactly what we're still seeing here. Now, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So we have the second coming, Jesus returns, and then he calls his servants. He wanted to see what the servants had done in his absence. Now, several translations, in particular even this one, seem to put the emphasis on what is Gained, But the word that he uses for gained is actually the same, at least in the original language, is actually the same word that he previously uses for engaging in business. And so in this case, it's just a compound of that previous word. So the two ideas are still connected. So I want you to understand what he's actually assessing is not what they gained, but were they faithful. The same idea is still going through this. Were they faithful? He's assessing their faithfulness with what they had been given, not did they produce something. And so notice what happens. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you were over five cities. So notice we have the first servant. And he has this thousand percent interest upon what the nobleman had given him. It appears that he, at least in the parable, is the most faithful servant, uh, as the nobleman says that he is a good servant. And then we have the second servant, and this servant was also faithful, and he produces 500% interest. Now, I want to be really careful because it's really easy to look at the mina and to think there's a direct correlation between faithfulness and what you produce. And I can tell you, even from experience, that that is not true. You can be incredibly faithful at something and actually produce very little. And likewise, you can appear to produce quite a lot and actually be incredibly unfaithful. There have been people who have labored in ministry and started these little small churches, and they don't ever grow into huge churches, but that doesn't mean they weren't unfaithful. Or there's people that had quite a lot, but they were actually incredibly unfaithful. And so, just because... You are faithful doesn't mean you're going to produce something. So in this case, the mina just represents their faithfulness. That's all that it means. So don't get caught up in like how much it's actually worth or how much they produced. He's just assessing their faithfulness. That's the only reason it's here. 
And so notice, they both employed their gifts faithfully and joyfully. They're both rewarded far more than they started with or deserved. I mean, think about this. They were faithful with this sum that's about enough to buy a truck. And then he says, hey, you had a thousand percent increase. You're now the ruler over 10 cities. Like, I don't, at least to me, that seems a little bit disproportionate to what they had done, right? The same thing with the other guy. He produces 500%. And then all of a sudden, well, hey, you get five cities. They get far more than what they started with. So he blesses them with greater responsibility. And notice, that's the reward for their faithfulness. He gives them greater participation, greater responsibility in his reign. Now notice what happens next, however. Then another came. And it says, I I like the fact that it says another because it almost casts a shadow on what's about to happen. The first was like, well, the first servant, and then the second service, and then another servant. And then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina. I kept laid, or I kept it laid away in a handkerchief. Or in this case, it more than likely would have been like a scarf that he probably would have just tucked it in and kind of keep the sun off his neck. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So notice what happens. He does nothing with what he's given. And then he goes on this tirade against the master's character, which once again, there's nothing in the parable that indicates that he deserves this. And he essentially says that he's harsh. He's hard to work for. He essentially steals from other people. He profits from other people's labor. I mean, these are some pretty hefty accusations against the nobleman. Now, notice what happens. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now, notice, he has made some presupposition about his master. And if those presuppositions about his character are not true, it further just produces more judgment against him. Now let's think about this. Whose money was it? If I recall, it wasn't the servants, was it? It was the nobleman's. Um, Whose money actually produced the more? It was the nobleman's money. So, so far, he is the one who is actually taking what he did not earn, reaping from what he did not sow, because it's the nobleman's mina that made more. And then on top of that, he's the one who's actually being harsh. So this is actually entirely self-condemnation. Everything that he said about the nobleman is not only not true, but it is exactly true of him. He gave the servant the money in the first place. The servants were reaping what they did not sow. Their rewards were far greater than the effort that they put in. You realize that not only is he not harsh, but he actually blessed the servants abundantly for their faithful servants, service, for their faithfulness. His condemnation of his master was a self-description. And so notice what he says. If you really thought these things about me, if you really thought this was true, why didn't you at least put the money in a bank? At least I would have gotten interest. He's essentially saying, like, you didn't actually think I was that harsh. 
because you didn't even act on it. And so, this is his indictment against him. He didn't even try. He did nothing with it. He was given this minor. And not only did he not do anything with it, then he blames his master for his unfaithfulness, for his lack of stewardship. Well, it's really your fault because you're kind of harsh and you steal and you profit off of other people's labor. He's just making excuses. And then notice what his punishment is. And then he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. So the wicked servant loses what he has. See, notice, because he was unfaithful, not only did he not get further responsibility, but even what he had was taken away from him. And once again, keep in mind, I want you to understand that the importance of the mina in the parable is not so much its value, but in that it represents the faithfulness of the servant. And so notice, the wicked servant loses what he has, not because he didn't make a profit, but because he was unfaithful. And some of you are probably thinking, like, well, maybe that, that's, doesn't that kind of seem like semantics? There's a difference, a very important difference. The emphasis is on the effort made, not on the result produced by the effort. He didn't even make an effort. See, this is why I said what I said earlier. Because you can be very faithful in the thing that the Lord's things in the Lord that you can be very faithful in the things that the Lord has called you to do and not see a lot of fruit from it. And yet likewise you could see a lot of fruit and actually not have been very faithful. Fruit. And so we need to be very careful about equating faithfulness with protection because they don't always go hand in hand. Sometimes it's true, but it's also not always true. See, faithfulness is never a question of what did I produce, but rather did I do my best with what I'd been given. That's the difference. Far too many people get caught up in just producing rather than resting in the grace of God and just saying, Lord, how can I do the best with what I have? And just understanding that that's all that he expects of us. He's not expecting us to produce anything. He's not necessarily expecting us to meet a quota. He just wants us to be faithful. Now notice what happens again. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. So, the other servant, who is really faithful, remember, he gets that additional mina. Now, once again, this does kind of seem a little bit silly because you're kind of like, well, he was just given authority over ten cities. Like, why is he now getting this mina? I mean, it seems pretty small by comparison of the reward that he just received. And yet, what does Jesus say? I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. See, the good servant was given more because he was faithful. Now keep in mind, this is still grace. It's not necessarily that he earned it. I mean, everything that we receive from the Lord is not something that we've earned. But the Lord blesses us, and he blesses faithfulness. And so, what happens? They complain, well, how come he gets more? 
See, grace doesn't make sense to the world. Why would he get more? Because of grace. And so this is the thrust of the message, of what Jesus is trying to get across to these people. The Lord's ledger works very differently than ours. You see, in the world, when you, have, when you give something away, it's a loss, right? You gave it away, and now you don't have something that you previously had. And what he's saying is that in the Lord's economy, it is in giving that there's gain. St. Francis puts it this way. He says, it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Have you ever noticed this kind of consistent, almost paradoxical nature to some of the things that Jesus would say? They're almost counterintuitive. It's in giving that we receive. It is in losing our lives that we find them. It is in forgiving or letting go that we are forgiven. It is in showing mercy that we receive mercy. Do you see that he keeps repeating this? Giving. It's in giving away that we gain. And this is exactly what the servants did, the faithful ones. See, notice, faithfulness results in more responsibility. Unfaithfulness results in less responsibility. Why? Because in giving of themselves for the purpose of the nobleman, they were given more responsibility. They gave, and so they received more because they were faithful with what the master had given to them. He's talking about stewardship. He wants to see, because once again, the mina belongs to the nobleman. It doesn't belong to the servant. And the servant was faithful with his master's resources, and so the master gave him more responsibility because he was faithful with what he had. Now, sadly, this is not where this ends because there's still some citizens that have yet to be dealt with. But as for the enemies of mine... Now, notice what has happened. They were originally called citizens. They are now called enemies. It's a rather tragic turn of events. As for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There is going to come a day when rebellion against God is going to be judged. This persistent desire to shake our fist at the Lord and to say, I don't want you to rule over me. You know, I want to be self-sovereign. I want to do what I want the way that I want to do it. I don't want to answer to anybody. And one day, whether they like it or not, they're going to stand before the Lord and they're going to have to answer for that. The tragic thing is, is there will be people who will never have been servants in the first place, will never have known the Lord because they had done nothing with his grace. They had not received him. Rather than turning to the Savior and asking for forgiveness, asking for grace, asking for mercy, seeking salvation from their sin, they would rather persist in their sin. And as a result, it's going to cost them everything. Now, what do we do with this passage? So ultimately, as we work through the scriptures, it should do something in our lives, right? It shouldn't just be something that we know, but something that changes us. Well, first of all, notice this had two parts. First, we had God's faithfulness to his people. 
He faithfully sought out Zacchaeus. He faithfully saved Zacchaeus. He faithfully transformed Zacchaeus. And likewise, he does the same thing in our lives. He is faithful to us. You realize how wonderful that is, that he seeks us out? That he wants to save us, that he wants to transform us? He is so, so very faithful to us, despite us not deserving it in the slightest And then what happens? The response from his people should be, we should be faithful to him. If he has been so faithful to us, so good to us, shouldn't we also respond likewise? I mean, if he gave his life for us, does he deserve anything less from us? And so God's people should be faithful. Faithful to what? First of all, faithful to his word. Taking this time to understand it. Because that understanding the Bible is not just for pastors or people in quote-unquote full-time ministry, but it's for believers. You realize that is the wonderful thing about knowing the Lord, is that you can actually know God. See, far too often people get caught up in just going to heaven as if that's like the whole crux of salvation. The crux of salvation was restored fellowship with God. You realize that was actually what was lost in the garden, that Adam, Eve, they both had this wonderful relationship with the Lord. They walked with him in the cool of the day. And then what happens? Sin enters the world and that relationship is ripped in two. And as we're made right with the Lord, we can now know him. That's not a privilege people who don't know the Lord get. They don't know them, know him the way that we do. We can actually know God. As we search the scriptures, we can learn about his character, his nature. We can grow in this relationship with him as we learn about him. It's the great privilege of salvation that we can actually know him because of his faithfulness to us. We're also called to be faithful to his mission. Mark 16, 15 says to go and preach the gospel to all nations. Matthew 28 says to go into all the world and make disciples, essentially taking it one step further. Don't just get people saved, but then help them to walk out that salvation. Assist them, walk with them, disciple them. We're called to be faithful with our gifts. I mentioned that word, that phrase rather, full-time ministry. I personally don't like this phrase, and here's why. Because it implies that only people who work at churches are really called to ministry. Every last believer who has ever walked the face of the earth is called to full-time ministry. Now, it's not necessarily going to look the same. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to work at a church. But what it does mean is that we are called to minister where God has placed us. As believers, we're called to minister to the people that he puts in our path, the people that may work with us, the people that we meet at the grocery store, family members who we need to minister to or preach the gospel to. We're all called to ministry, and there's plenty of it for us to be busy forever. We're all called to full-time ministry. We're called to be faithful with the gifts that he's given. Not only are we called to minister to the people that God puts in in our social circles, it's even ministering to the church body. You realize that you're called to minister in this setting to the people that are sitting in this room? That's not just people who work at the church. We're all called to counsel one another, to rebuke one another, to encourage one another, to bear one another's burdens. Realize just as much as I'm, I'm here to help you and to minister to you, you're actually also called to minister to me as well. 
I just have a different position, but that doesn't mean that I'm any more than any one of you. I'm just called to teach the word. That's what God's called me to do. But we're all called to minister. We're all called to minister to one another. See, God has gifted every last one of us with time, energy, and resources. And we should be using those things for God's glory because you know what? Our time is not our time. Our energy is not our energy, and our resources are not our resources. They're all God's. Just like the mina. It's all God's. And we're called to use it for his glory, to further his kingdom and not our own. Now, there is an enemy that stands in the way of faithfulness, and it's one that every last one of us will struggle with. Because I'm sure, you know, how many of you guys have, you know, not used time wisely? That's, that's a trick question. Everybody should raise their hands. We've all not used our time wisely. We've all not used our resources wisely at some point, our energy wisely. We've all wasted those things at times. And here's why. Because we have a very particular foe that makes it difficult to be faithful to the Lord. And that's idolatry. I mean, it really could be any number of things, but that tends to be the root cause. It's the, we let something else become God in our lives. And that can even not only be sin, but good things. Things that are not necessarily wrong. But we spend way too much time doing those things. And it can rob us of our faithfulness to him. See, we can maybe get too caught up in politics. I'm not saying it's not important. But at the same time, we can get caught up where we are more faithful to a presidential candidate than to the Lord, where we are more likely to read or watch the news than we are to read our Bibles. We're more likely to get burdened by a social issue than we are for the gospel and for lost people. You know, and then sometimes we complain that we don't have enough time, and I'm throwing myself in this mix. We complain that we don't have enough time can I tell you something? We make time for what's important to us. How many times do we spend so much time flipping through social media or so much time watching the news or binging shows or playing golf or doing any of one of our favorite hobbies? And I'm not saying any of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when they start to take the place of the Lord, it becomes a problem. Where you spend your time, effort, and energy is really what you've made God. And I know in my life there's been times where I have not been faithful to him because I've let something else take his place. And so what do we have to do? Well, first of all, how do we remain faithful to him? By the power of the Holy Spirit. See, far too many Christians walk defeated lives who struggle for any number of reasons because they don't ever confess their neediness. One of the best things that you can do for your spiritual walk is to recognize you don't have it all together. That you haven't arrived, that you're not perfect, that you still have things to work on. Because you know what it's going to do? It's going to cause you to sit or kneel before the Lord and to beg for help. To recognize that you can't do it on your own. You can't defeat your flesh in and of yourself. It's not just that you need more willpower. It's not just that you need to try harder. It's that you need the grace of God to help you to be faithful to him. 
And so we need the help of the Holy Spirit. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 8, 26-27, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You realize what this passage is saying? God prays for you because he knows you're weak. He knows that you need help. He knows better than you do what you need help with. He helps us in our weaknesses. And far too often, we're defeated before we even start because we don't recognize that we need help. We live in a society that has to do everything on our own. I have to be the one who did it. I have to persevere. I have to struggle through this. I have to fight, and I want to earn it. Can I tell you something that is completely opposed to the gospel? And here's why. Because the gospel is all about the fact that you can't earn it. You can't fix it. You can't clean up the mess that you've made. This is why we need grace. This is why we need the help of the Lord in our lives. And if we're not willing to humble ourselves before him and ask for that help, we are going to struggle and struggle and struggle and never find victory. We have to ask for help. And then what do we do? We ask for help, and then he says, or, and then Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice he says weight and sin. There's a difference between those two things. Because there are things that are not necessarily sin that can weigh you down, that can take the place of God, that can become sin. Can I tell you, sometimes what we need to do, if we are finding that we are not faithful to the Lord as we should be, maybe it's because there are things that actually not only do we need to tone them down, but maybe we need to actually remove them entirely until we get them in their proper place. And maybe we don't ever take them back again. We need to be doing whatever we can to produce more and more faithfulness to the Lord by the help of the Holy Spirit. Now, What's rather interesting is that across this entire message, there has been something that has united these two ideas, the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of his people. <clears throat> Notice, God faithfully seeks out his people. What is this? It's grace. God saves his people, which is what? Grace. He transforms his people, which is grace. Being faithful to his word. His word is grace. Faithful to his mission. It's a mission of grace. Faithful with his gifts. The giftings that we receive are grace. God gives us responsibility. This is grace. And what do we get if we're faithful? More grace. More responsibility that we don't deserve in the first place. And then how do we remain faithful? What's the help of the Holy Spirit? It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. You will never, ever, ever outgrow the grace of God. There will never be a day when you don't need it. There will never be a day when you don't need the gospel. We desperately need the grace of God every single day. We're saved by grace. And we remain faithful to him by grace. And we make the most of every opportunity and day that God gives us by his grace. We defeat sin by grace. It's grace. It's grace. It's grace. 
grace is what unites the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of his people. It's because of his grace that he's faithful to us. He shows us favor that we don't deserve. And so he's faithful to us. And it's because of his grace that we're faithful to him. You realize that grace in and of itself should be enough driving force for us to be faithful to him? The fact that we've received so much that we don't deserve. And I think part of the problem is is that we don't realize just how little we actually deserve. You realize that not one of us deserves a single good thing from God because we are all sinners. We have all rebelled against God. There is none of us who is righteous. We all struggle with sin. And yet God is so good to us and shows us so much favor and so much grace. And then notice, how do we remain faithful to him? It's by his grace. And one day, what Jesus is saying here is that we will all give an account to the Lord for what we did with his grace. We're all going to have to stand before him and say what we did with it. Because he's shown us all grace. Romans 8, 10 through 12 says, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And so each of us will give an account of himself to God. And just before that, he says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Every last one of us. And we will either stand in grace before the Lord, maybe we'll be counted as faithful servants and we'll receive more. Maybe we'll be unfaithful servants who did very little with what we were given. And still yet even more tragic, there will be some who will never have done anything with that grace, who will never have been servants in the first place, who will never have known to the Lord, and he will have to say, depart from me, I never knew you. I ask you, are you being faithful to the one who has been so faithful to you. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness towards us. Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you that you have saved us, that you sought us out. Lord, that you wanted to know us. Lord, that you wanted us to know you. Lord, thank you for seeking out Zacchaeus. Likewise, thank you for seeking us out. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be faithful to you. Lord, help us to recognize our weakness. Lord, would we lift one another up in our weaknesses? Lord, I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would turn to you, Lord, that they would receive that free gift of grace. Lord, that they would not run from you, that they wouldn't shake their fist at you, but Lord, that they would stand in front of you and ask for forgiveness, that they would ask for mercy recognizing that they're a sinner, but Lord, you love them and you want them to know you. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would do a work in their hearts, Lord, that you would truly seek and save the lost as you have promised in your word. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your name we pray all of these things. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.